so glad that you're here with us at Word of Life today. Welcome to everybody that's watching as a part of our online community. Uh, and we have a vision to keep expanding that online community outside the walls of our own church to around the United States and at some point around the world. So uh, be praying for us as we have a vision to see many people come to Christ. We are one church, many languages. Uh, I've already spoken at the 8.30 Amheric service uh, this morning, and we have a great congregation. I love Pastor Waldy, Bisrat, and the whole team there doing a phenomenal job. Let's give them a round of applause. And then... Napo and Anna and the team there and our Spanish service will be coming up next. I'd love it if you go with me to 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11. We are in week two of our series, Bath, Bed, and Beyond. Bath, Bed, and Beyond. Week two, if you're just joining us uh, online, then maybe you need to go back next week and last week's message and check that out. This is what it says here in verse 1. In the spring of the year... The time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Amorites and besieged Rabah, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and she was very beautiful. Everyone say, bath or bath, which is the right way. Bath. I went for my United States uh, citizenship interview this week. You would, you would think, and I got all the questions right. So it's all good. So I'm going to have to say bath from now on. Bath. David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messages and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she'd been purifying herself from her uncleanliness, and then she returned to her house. Everyone say, bed. The woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Everyone say, beyond. Bath, bed, and beyond. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your word today. We thank you that it's alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to get into our lives and penetrate and bring supernatural change from the inside out. Speak to us that are here in this room. Speak to those that are watching by way of online. Lord God, speak to our hearts so you can change us. We want to be more in your image every day. And so, God, I pray for hearts to hear and ears to hear, Holy Spirit, what you're saying to us individually and collectively in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. When I was about 13 uh, years of age, uh, I wanted many things, but one thing in particular that I really wanted was hair on my chest. I wanted to be a man. To be a man, I needed to have hair on my chest, and I didn't have any hair on my chest. And I remember when the first hair appeared, I gave it a name, Little Harry. I love Little Harry. I cultivated Little Harry. And I encourage Little Harry every night, invite some friends to the party. I need more of you. I don't want to go through life being called one chest hair Morgan. And eventually, he invited friends and it's a forest there now. One thing I learned about life was that I was praying for that as a young man, but as an older man, I found out that hair 
does not need any encouragement to arrive anywhere on your body. I found out hair will grow in areas you don't want hair to grow. I had a hair on my ear. I'm not talking about hair in my ear. I'm talking about a hair on my ear, right here on my ear, right there. It wasn't a small hair. I noticed it when it was about three inches long. I had like a tail, like a, a three-inch tail growing out. People were in danger of worshiping beside me just in case I whipped them with this whip that was coming out the side of my skull. And I thought to myself when I noticed it, I know that didn't appear overnight. I know, that, I, I know that I didn't go to bed last night with no hair on my ear, and then just out of nowhere, whoosh, it just appeared. I knew that that had been there, and that people had seen it. And they decided not to say anything about it. Everyone could see it, but no one wanted to talk about it. How many of you know just because we uh, don't talk about it or no one wants to talk about it doesn't mean it's not there. And just because people don't want to talk about it doesn't mean it's not a problem. It's not an issue. That's like sin. Today I'm going to talk about sin. It's not a subject that's on the top 40 of preaching in churches around the world in 20. 22. But just because we don't talk on sin does not mean that sin has stopped becoming an issue. Sin begins in a process. It engages in an action, and it ends with a consequence. Sin begins with a process. We call that process temptation. Sin engages in an, act, in an action. It's a result of full-blown submission to that temptation. And then sin ends with a consequence. Sin, by nature, is destructive. The book of Romans tells us in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin, the cost of sin, the result of sin, the end of sin is death. James told us in James 1, verse 15, right at the end, he said, sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So you can pretty sin up all you like. You can dismiss it and say it doesn't exist. You can uh, justify it. You can legalize it. You can make it unlawful for anybody to talk about it. You can try to get the conversation negated in every way possible. But sin exists, and the nature of all sin is death and destruction. Sin is not going to add value to your life. Sin is going to destroy your life. Now, the Bible says there's pleasure in sin for a season. So I'm not saying that there's not some part of sin that you didn't find enjoyable. There is pleasure in sin for a season. You're not going to be able to be tempted by something that's not tempting to you. But the wages, the end result of all sin is death and destruction. It may take a few decades. It may take a little while. But the end result of sin is someone is going to get hurt. And you may be the sinner, but you may not be the only one who gets hurt. If you're in the church in the 70s, the mantra of the 70s was sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And the church preached against that. 
It preached against sleeping around. It, 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 it preached against the flesh. It preached against the whole, if it feels good to you, just do it. And society looked at us and thought, you guys are crazy. You guys are weird. Why are you calling those good things sin? And society lived it up. And then we found out after that that drugs are very addictive. And we found out that drugs are very destructive. And we found out that drugs don't help you. They destroy you. And anybody that's been in that background will know how destructive that habit is. And we found out that it's not only addictive, but it will suck all the life out of your life. And it will pass on to your children and your children's children. Why? Because the wages of sin is? Now, now smoking is not going to send you to hell. You'll smell like you've already been there, but it won't send you to hell. But even with cigarette smoking, I remember my mom telling me you shouldn't smoke. That's going to destroy your body. It's not godly. And I'm like, mom, you're crazy. And now on every cigarette packet, the biggest advertising that they have on the outside of the packet is, this will kill you. That's the nicest thing that they can say about it. And again, the church was attacked like, why are you talking about that being bad? like sleeping around. And in the 70s, everyone started sleeping. We started this whole culture. If it feels good, do it. And it ended up in a hashtag, me too. People got hurt. People's lives got destroyed. Because you can't play with sin. It is destructive. Sin is a process. It engages with an action and ends always with a consequence. The process in this was David sees Bathsheba in the bath. The action is he invites her to his place and he sleeps with her. The consequence, she falls pregnant and then David enters into an elaborate cover-up plan beyond the sin that brings forth death and destruction. So sin always begins in a process. It begins in the bath. 2 Samuel chapter 11, we read it. It talks about in the year when the kings were supposed to be at war, David sent Joab, his servants with him, all Israel. They, they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David stayed at home. This was the beginning. This is the first step in the process. No one falls into sin. You walk into sin. It lures you. It's a process, and every step that you take is going to take you closer to the end result of sinning. That's what temptation does. David's tempted. His flesh is tempted. You've been fighting really hard. You don't need to go to war. Why don't you take a break, hang out at home? And that's what he did. That was the first step. He stepped out of destiny, stepped out of his call, and he was at home just chilling and relaxing. Now, there's nothing wrong with a vacation, nothing wrong with relaxing. The first time David did that, when he relaxed at home on a God-given, ordained rest. When he looked out, he didn't see a woman. He saw the ark of God. He saw the presence of God was not in a great place, and he had a hunger for the kingdom of God in this place, taking time out when he shouldn't have taken time out. He didn't see the presence of God. He saw a hot woman. So he took a step. He's out in the balcony. He's checking out all his kingdom, and he's admiring the, 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 the kingdom that he has got, probably thinking about when he was just a little boy as a shepherd and how far God has brought him, and now this is all his. And ego is like feeding him. I, I, I'm amazing. This is fantastic. He's enjoying his sight. And then as he's walking, he notices a woman taking a bath. That's another step towards, whoa, there's a woman taking a bath. Then he notices that she is beautiful. Now, I don't know if that was an instant notice or if he spent some time waiting, seeing if she turns around. 
but the way it's written here would be that this is, he's moving to, now he sees that she's beautiful, that's another step. And so he says to his, his man, hey, can you find out who this woman is? She looks awesome. So he sends out people and they, they come back with this message and the way the scripture is written, it's not an encouragement, it's a deferral, it's a warning. David, this is Uriah, Uriah's wife. This, this is a daughter of one of your commanders. This is, this is property you shouldn't touch. It's a warning. And David steps over the warning and says, I don't care. Go and invite her to come to the kingdom. And so she ends up at his kingdom. He sleeps with her, sends her away, and she falls pregnant. Every step in the process that David took was a step towards the destination of sin. Bible says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. When you're walking and ungodly thoughts come, don't keep walking in the ungodly direction. You're going to turn your back. Repentance isn't something you just do when you sin. Repentance can happen at temptation. The word for repent, metanoia, means to change direction. So I'm heading this way. I'm heading towards a problem with Bathsheba, I arrest myself. I'm like, that's going to end up in sin and death. And so I turn my back and I go the other way. I turn my back and I, I do what Paul told Timothy to do. I flee youthful lusts. That's what Joseph did. That's how Joseph kept his integrity. Joseph serving Potiphar. Potiphar's wife gets the hots for Joseph. She comes up to Joseph. She's like, hello, hey, Joe. You want to give it a go? And, and he's like, No. No, and he takes one look at her. He's like, I, I'm not going to be able to, and he runs. He just flees. That's what we've got to do. You've got to turn your back. You repent, and you run in the temptation phase. James said this, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each one is tempted, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Each person is tempted. Each person is tempted. The thing that we all have in common is that every one of us are going to be tempted at some point to enter into some level of sinful behavior. Everyone is tempted when he is lured. When he is lured. One thing we have in common is that we are not all lured or tempted by the same thing. What tempts you to sin may be not what tempts me to sin. We all are tempted, but we're not all tempted in the same way. There was a small group, a connect group, a life group. Four or five people got together and they decided, let's make this an accountability group. Let's share our struggles. Let's share our problems. Let's be open. Let's get it out in the, in the open. We all struggle with sin. We all struggle with temptation. Let's talk about our temptation. So the first guy goes, well, I'll, 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 go, I'll go first. I'll go first. He said, I, I got to tell you, I'm, I'm a kleptomaniac. I, I, I steal stuff. I don't want to do it, but I don't know if it's just a habit from young. But if I see something, just got to take it, got to have it. If I'm in church and some woman leaves her purse, handbag, on a bench and no one's around, I think, Jehovah Jireh. The Lord has seen my need in providing. So I'll take the purse. I don't want to. I don't, I don't want to steal. I know it's bad. I know it's wrong. I know it's sinful, but I, I steal. 
I'm just going to be honest with you guys. I'm, it's, 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 it's crushing me. The other guy's like, oh. So I, I don't have that struggle, but I struggle with, with looking at naked women. And it's a problem. It's a big problem. I've tried for months, years probably, to cancel my subscription to National Geographic, but I just, I can't stop buying that magazine, and I struggle, and I know it's wrong, and my wife's not happy, and that's my, that's my temptation. Third guy goes, well, now we're being honest. Uh, if I'm honest, I'm a compulsive liar. I can't help but lie. You know the other day when I told you you guys were all awesome? It was a lie. I don't like any of you. You, I said you were good looking. You get money to haunt a house. It's just, it's not good. And uh, I just, I got to lie. I'm lying all the time. The other day, the pastor asked me if I tithe. I told him yes. It's a lie. In fact, I'm lying. I never talked to the pastor the other day. He didn't even talk to me. <laughs> I went out the other door just in case he'd catch me lying. I saw him on the door. I was like, oh, I'm not going past him. He'll catch me in a lie. And so I went out another door, which is a lie. I wasn't even at church the other day. I was watching online which is actually a lie. I don't even have internet. With all this confession, the fourth guy just gets up and just runs to the door. And they all go, hey, yeah, come back, man. Don't, don't freak out. This is a safe place. We're all sharing our, our temptations. And he's like, yeah, I, I, I know. My, my temptation is gossip. And with all this information, I can't wait to get home and get on social media and let everybody know. We're all lured. When we're lured, it's not the same thing. It's a own personal struggle, but we're all tempted and we are lured, the Bible says, and we are enticed. The enticement is now, you're not just caught, he, he noticed woman in the bath, but now he goes one step further and sees she's attractive. Eve, when she is lured by the thought of the tree, of the knowledge of good and evil, she sees that it's good for food, it's desirable to make one wise. She is she's enticed by the result of what will happen if she takes its fruit. David is enticed by what he thinks will happen if he invites this lady over to watch. I, I want to encourage you, watch what you watch. Your eyes are the gateway of your soul. Watch what you read. Watch what you watch on TV. Watch who you're watching on blogs. Don't feed your soul with negativity. Job said, I made a covenant with my eyes. You've got to be able to get things into line with what you look. Achan sin began by a view of something. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of the sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scoffer, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. If you want to stop sin in its tracks, you've got to, just, you've got to change the desire of your heart. You've got to make the desire of your heart the Word of God. You've got to make your desire of your heart the presence of God. You've got to make the desire of your heart prayer. You've got to get a practical habit of every day, praying, reading your Bible, getting into the Word of God, getting into the presence of God, seeking after the face of God. That is going to be when you can put God's desires first, the flesh desires will come second. But if you never put God's desire first, then you're going to always live with your own fleshly desires. Temptation's dangerous. You can't play with the bath. You can't play with the bath. When, 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 when I grew up, and I don't know why my parents did it. You may still do this. 
But my parents, when I, when I was just a young fellow, they would, they would leave the water in the bath. They have a bath, and then they'd leave the water in the bath for me to take my bath. I took my bath in the secondhand bath water of my parents. And I never really realized how gross that was until I become a parent. And I thought, I don't want anybody getting in the bath water after me. I'm not sure if it was a hangover from the war or their parents did it and their parents did it and they just passed it down. My parents thought, this is a good idea because we didn't need to save the money. Water wasn't that expensive. But all my childhood, I took into my teenage years, I think it was like 11 or maybe 12, and, and I was getting out of the bath that my dad left for me. And I reached down to pull the plug out, and bam, something bit me at the plug. And blood started, you can still see the scar on my finger, blood started to pour out my finger. I just jumped up and I ran. I ran into the kitchen screaming. Something bit me! Something bit me! Something bit me! And my mom's like, don't put blood everywhere! Don't put blood everywhere! My sister was like, oh, for the love of all things holy, put some clothes on. I'm running around the kitchen, nothing on but a smile, blood pouring out of my finger. And then my dad says, oh, that's where I left that razor blade. My dad dropped a razor blade in the bathtub and left it for me to find. How messed up is that? I would suggest to you when it comes to temptation, there's always a razor blade in the bathtub. You can't play with temptation. It's going to take you out. Sin begins in a process. It engages with an action. That's the bed. In the rabbis taught on sin, they said it was like this. It, the, the first temptation is like the first thread of a spider's web. You can't see it. Very fine, almost invisible. Then they just add thread after thread after thread until it becomes a web. That's temptation. That's how sin catches you. Just with one little thought, one little glimpse, one little idea, one little sideways. And then all of a sudden you are trapped like in a rope bound up in the issue. But each one is tempted, James says, when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then sin, when it has conceived, gives birth. Sorry, the temptation, desire when it's conceived, gives birth to sin. Sin is an action. It's an active response to temptation. It's the, uh, it's the outworking of your inward fleshly desire. A.W. Pink, a great Bible teacher, he said this. He said, the flesh in the believer is no better than the flesh in the unbeliever. Flesh is flesh. We can never afford to get to the point where we think we're beyond sin. You can never get too cocky, too arrogant, too smug to think that you're just better than everybody else and this is everybody else's issue and it's not your issue. David was not a young man when this took place. David was in his 50s. David was in his 50s and he was successful. In fact, God pointed it out to him in chapter 12. He said, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and I gave you your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And, and, and look at this. And if, if this were too little... I would add to you 
as much more. So God says to David, David, I'd set you up for success. He's in this moment. David, he's slain lions. He's slain bears. He is the giant slayer. His kingship has subdued kingdoms. Now he's in, the, he's in the palace, taking a leisurely walk on the rooftop of his palace, surveying his kingdom. He is in the place of absolute success. And it would be easy for him to say, I've had all these victories. I am undefeatable. Just like Peter, when Jesus said, Peter, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. And Peter's like, no, I'm the man. I've defended you. I attacked the guy with my sword. There's no way I'm going to deny you. I, I've got this thing in the bag. I, 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 I'm Peter. I am the rock. I'm, I'm the water walker. But you can never get yourself into a position where you think you're too big or you're too good to stumble. Somebody said, if failure has slain its thousands then success has slain its tens of thousands. Sin is an action. It's an active response to temptation. David sent messages and took her. She came to him and he lay with her. Sin is an action. It's an outworking of the flesh. Galatians chapter 5 verse 19 says, Now the works of the flesh are evident. List them out, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. That's sort of David's issue here. That's the issue that most times the church focuses on. But then it says idolatry. What idols are you making? What are you putting before God? What do you put before God on a Sunday? What would, what would come before you that you would say, I'd rather do that on a Sunday than go to church? I'd rather do that on a Sunday than worship God. I'd rather do that than read my Bible. What idols are there? What sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, Fits of anger, rivalries, dissension, division. That to me is an interesting one. And you've heard me talk about it. It's my pet peeve. All these men and women who've made blogs online criticizing every other teacher. They, they give you 101 reasons and they'll, they'll rattle them off. Furtick and Joel Osteen. They'll give you a whole list of people that they say these are not men of God. They sit back and they take portions out of their message and focus for 10 minutes on two or three words to try to take it out of context and judge. And they don't realize that division is listed here as a sin. You're up there in your high and mighty little room with your little computer <laughs> and making, and, and you're actually creating division in the body of Christ. And the Bible says that God hates those who sow discord or division amongst the brethren. It's listed here as a part of the flesh. So don't think your divisive nature is somehow holy. Your divisive nature is somehow godly. If you're causing division, it's coming from your flesh. Envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Why? Because the wages of sin is... Sin is an action. It's an action that misses the target of best. Sin is an it's something you do. The, the, the Greek word for sin is hamatia, that literally means just missing the mark. It, it's like someone took a spear, threw it at a target back in that day, and they didn't hit the target. Hamatia. If they had a, a bow and an arrow, and they were shooting for the target, and they shot and they missed the target, hamatia. That's called sin. It's missing the target. What sin is, is God has a target. He has a goal that brings life. Jesus came to bring us life and to bring us life more 
abundantly. Jesus came to bring us life and life more abundantly. The enemy came for one purpose, to, to what? Steal and to kill and to destroy. So the destructive nature of sin is the characteristic of the devil and of his kingdom. But Jesus came to give us life and to give us life more abundantly. There's nothing sinful about sexuality. It's a part of God's creation and should be enjoyed by a man and a woman inside marriage. What we've tried to do today is we've tried to redefine all of that and say, well, and, and, and the end or result of all that is destruction. I'm here to tell you today, choose the high life. Choose the life that God has called for us. Jesus came to give us life and to give us life more. Anytime we aim and we miss and we drop the, the mark, we're harmateering and we are living below the target. The Bible says all have sinned and fallen short. It means we aimed, we didn't try hit it. We just, we, just, we just missed it. Just stopped short. Sin begins in a process, engages with an action, and ends with a consequence. That's the beyond. The woman conceived and she said to David and she said, I am pregnant. Now, pregnancy is not a sin. The fact that she's pregnant, that's not the sin. When they had sex outside of with somebody else's wife, adultery, that was the sin. Being pregnant is a consequence. It's the result. It's a biblical principle. Sowing and reaping. It's just a biblical principle. You sow apples, you get apples. You sow oranges, you get oranges. You say babies, you're going to get a baby. That's just how it happens. It's just Bible. Bible 101. It's not complicated. So her being pregnant is not sinful. It's now exposing something happened. And David's like, I got to cover that sucker up. My sins come out into the open. I got to get it back in the dark. Adam and Eve, when they sinned, first thing they did was, we got to hide this up. We don't want anybody to know. Now, the New Testament teaches us, when you sin, confess it, get it out into the light, and the power goes out. What we tend to do is when we sin, we like these people, we hide it in the dark, and while it's in the dark, it has power. Now, God will expose sin. He'll expose sin. And most people think that when God exposes sin, He's judging. But He's not judging, He's restoring. He's getting it out in the open so it doesn't totally destroy your life. He wants you to be free. He came to give us life and life, and sin is going to bring death. So, so the only way we can deal with sin is to expose it. The only way you can deal with darkness is to put it into the light. Everyone thinks that when men of God fall and mess it up and do wrong and then it becomes public, everyone's like, that's God's judgment. No, that's God's freeing them up because men are God, women are God are no different. We're all the same. We're all just people of God. And so God's like, I've got to rescue you. I've got to redeem you. I've got to give you a chance for a way back. There's got to be restoration. There's got to be repentance. There's got to be... So God wants to, so now David's like, 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 now he's busted. Rather than bringing it into the light and saying, hey, i got an issue here, he decides, i I got, I got to cover this up. And so he hatches a plan. He invites Uriah the Hittite to come to his house from war. Sends a message, bring Uriah back from war. Uriah ends up at the, the, the palace. Hey, hey, David, King David, how are you doing? David's like, hey, Uriah, I've heard you've been working really hard. Killed a whole heap of people at war. It's tough out there at war. And your name's come to me, and you're a good man. So I thought I would just give you a romantic weekend away with your wife, just as a reward. And so we've got some of the best kingdom champagne, some champagne. We've got a box of chocolates for you. 
fuck a shuck of light. Bunch of roses, red roses, a dozen, a dozen red roses. Uriah, you take those red roses, you take that champagne, you take those chocolates home to your wife, and here, just as a bonus, you can take my Barry White CD. So Uriah takes it all, he's walking home towards his wife, and then all of a sudden he thinks to himself, what am I doing? I can't be with my wife, with all my comrades. He's, he has integrity. So he just throws it all in the trash. Sleeps on the, the doorway of the, the kingdom. David wakes up the next morning expecting good news, and he sees Uriah down there. What are you doing? Like, oh, king, I thank you so much for all that other stuff, but I just couldn't, I couldn't go and... I couldn't do that. My, my friends are at war. I, 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 they're suffering. I can't be having pleasure. David's like, I hate it when people have got so much integrity. He says, well, come up to my place. We'll, we'll, we'll have a few drinks. The Bible says he, he gets him drunk. And hoping that in a drunken stupor, Uriah will drop his integrity but he doesn't. Uriah's a horrible drunk, just falls to sleep. Not even funny, not even a funny drunk, not even going to tell jokes. Just falls asleep. Wakes up So David's like, I have a problem. I try to set this thing up. What's he doing? He's digging. It's almost like David said, I've got myself into this hole. I'm going to dig my way out, which is the most stupid thing you can say if you're in a hole. You can't dig your way out. You can only make it bigger. This is what David's doing. So then David writes a letter to the commander and gives it to Uriah that says, take Uriah and put him on the front of the battlefield, the most dangerous area where, where the toughest fighting is, and he knows Uriah's going to get killed. He gives Uriah his own death warrant, and Uriah takes it back. He gets out on the battlefield. He gets killed, and David feels like, my sin has been covered up. I'm doing good. I'm... I'm I'm winning here. No one's going to know. The Bible says when sin is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when it's full grown, it brings forth death. Here's the thing about sinful behavior. All sinful behavior is going to impact somebody else. This right here, David hasn't died, but Uriah has. David hasn't died, but Bathsheba's lost her husband. You've got to think about sinful. The death of sin is not just centralized on the one who sins. In fact, David's sin impacts his family to the second and third generations beyond. So the wages of sin is death. is not just something that you will get, but sinful. But you can't sin in isolation and have the consequences stay in isolation. You may sin in isolation, but the consequences are going to go out. And we've already got one person who was innocent, who was integrous, who was a good man, who has died because of David's sin. And now in doing that, David's sin has increased. He's not making it better. He's just making it worse. David and Bathsheba, they mourn for a little while, something that feels really, really, you know, good and fine and, and, and appropriate, and then they get married. And David is chilling because his sin has been covered up. But then God gets involved in the beyond. It's important to see how God handles this situation. He handles it with restoration and with repentance. Repentance is a process that engages with an action and ends with a consequence. 
Repentance begins in a process. So, so, so the first thing that God does is God sends Nathan the prophet. Now, Nathan's not a stranger to David. He, he was the one who was helping him uh, uh, assess this whole thought back when he was resting and wanted to build God a house. Nathan was the prophet who was engaged with David. David and Nathan have a very good relationship. They're close. One of David's sons gets called Nathan, probably named after Nathan the prophet. Uh, later on, when Solomon is uh, you know, struggling to get into power, Nathan's the one who works with David to get Solomon into power. And so David and Nathan are close. It's, it's interesting to me that the person that God sends to David to lead into a place of repentance is a friend. He doesn't send a judge. He doesn't send a critic. He sends a friend. Nathan approaches the king with reconciliation, grace, and not judgment. Nathan is going to lovingly expose David's problem to David, but not to everybody. So David, Nathan comes with one agenda. I'm going to point it out, but we're going to get restoration that's going to happen in this place. I believe that's the way the church should deal with things. We've got to approach people's failures with love. We've got to approach people's failures with grace. We've got to approach people's failures with the love and the compassion and the heart of God. And we're going to get less judgy and more loving we're going to get less judgy and more helping people to overcome the things that are going to destroy their life. You, you must have heard this by now, but they said when you point one finger out judging somebody else, says how many? Three fingers pointing back at you. Whenever I hear somebody judging somebody else, and you'll see it happen here in this passage, I, I don't think to myself, wow, that person's holy. If you're a highly critical, judgmental person, You've always got something bad to say about everybody else. My instant response is, I wonder what you're hiding. Look what happens here. Nathan comes up and he tells him a parable. There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb. He, he, he gives him this parable, and he's pretty much exposing, David, you were the man in power, and you took something that didn't belong to you for somebody who didn't have any power. You are the rich man. He was the poor man. You took his ewe lamb. David hears this, doesn't know it's about him. And the Bible says David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. Kill him. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Now, the, the result of stealing the lamb biblically was to restore fourfold. That part was righteous. The kill him was unrighteous judgment. So this is what he's done. His guilt is making unright. Get him to restore and kill him. And then Nathan said, David, you are the man. And then David was like, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. You jumped in on that a bit quick. When I said kill him, I was about to add some other stuff and you cut me off. That's rude. I was like killing him softly with this song, pouring my heart out. This song, killing him softly. That's what I was meaning. I'm going to kill him, not kill, kill, like dead kill. Just don't laugh at his jokes. If we're, if we're honest, Nathan not only exposes David's sin, but he exposes our tendency to judge others by their actions and not by their intentions. We want to be judged by our intentions and not our actions. Well, I didn't mean to do that. Yeah, but you did it. 
when that person does, oh, they did that. Yeah, but they didn't mean to. I don't care. See how the judgment? I, I, I believe, I believe that one of the reasons that God showed grace to David when he didn't deserve it was because some of the things that he'd done in the years prior, how he handled Saul when he was attacking him, looking after Mephibosheth, some of the grace things, God, if you, if, if you will be gracious towards people in your life, when you need grace, you would have built a hedge of grace around your life. You need to say grace in the times of need, so in the times of where it's good, so you'll get grace back when you have a time of need. Repentance begins in a process and engages with an action. So David repents. I've done wrong. And he writes this psalm. Russell, you can come. Psalm 51 was a psalm that David wrote after his sin had been exposed by Nathan the prophet. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. This is David's prayer. This is David's prayer. When it's exposed, he's like, I, I, I need you to have mercy on me. I need you to cleanse me. I realize I've, I've sinned against you. I, I, I've done the wrong thing. I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in my sin my mother did conceive me. That's not saying that his mother was sinful. What he's saying was I was born into this sinful world. I was born into sin as a sinner. Behold, you delight in truth and in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop. So I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. I'm here to tell you today that you may have sinned. You may have fallen short of the glory of God. You may have done wrong. The Bible says there's no one righteous. No, not one. Every one of us needs this moment where we come to God and we say, God, I'm not worthy. God, I'm not right. I have done wrong. There are many mistakes in my life, but I need you to cleanse me. I need you to wash me. I need to become whiter than snow. And the Bible says, and even though your sins are as red as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all of our sin. That, my friend, is what the cross was about. Jesus went to the cross. The wages of sin is death. He went to the cross to pay the price of death so you and I who have sin can have life. He who knew no sin became sin so you and I who are full of sin could be free from the curse of sin. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Maybe that's your prayer today. In just a moment, we're going to close the service. We're going to give you a, a chance for a fresh start in your life and relationship with God. It's a step of repentance. While your life has probably been a lot of steps to doing things that you regret, this prayer is one step turning your back on the past and moving into your future. Coming to God and saying, God, I don't want to live like that anymore. And it's not the only step you need to take. 
There's steps of discipleship. You saw some people today take the steps of baptism. There are other steps that we can walk you through. And so if you prayed this prayer today, it's the first step, but not the only step. And we'd invite you to step with us to let somebody know I prayed that prayer today. You can fill out the card in front of you and put it in the box as you go out and say, I prayed that prayer. Give us some information. We'll let you know what the first next step is. Or you can go to the Connect booth. But there are many steps that you need to take to get you on the right track to living for God. But that's the first one is repentance. And then David says this. Creating me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. God created me a clean heart. My heart has been soiled. My heart has done wrong. It's full of envy. It's full of lust. It's full of bitterness. It's full of insecurity. It's full of unforgiveness. It's full of hate. It's full of malice. It's full of destruction. Lord, I, I, I don't like how I, I see me. So creating me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. Restore to me, Lord, joy. Let joy be my portion. The Bible says that the joy of the Lord is your strength. Joy, draw joy up from the wells of salvation. This is what God is wanting to do to David. He's not wanting to push him down, kick him to the curb. He wants to restore him. That's what repentance does. That's the heartbeat of the church. That's the heartbeat of God. That's how God deals with sin. He doesn't judge it and condemn it. He says that's wrong, but he gives us an opportunity for a turnaround. He gives us an opportunity for a fresh start, for a do-over. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Here's the, here's the sum total of why God gives you grace. It's in this next verse. Look at me. You may go, well, why would God give me all that grace? Why would God forgive me? Why would God restore me? Why, why, why doesn't God do what all the angry Christians say he'll do? Just judge me and condemn me and kick me to the curb. Why, why, would, he, why, why would he ruin you? Why would he give me a fresh start? It's because of this. Verse 13. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Because once you've experienced his grace... Jesus said, the same who loves, loves much. When you've experienced the love and the grace of God, and you know how much He's forgiven you, and you've experienced His cleansing of your heart, then what do you want? I want to teach transgressors your way. Why am I preaching this message today? I want to teach you His ways. I want you to experience the same grace that forgave me. I want you to experience the same love that turned my life around. I, I, I want you to experience the same grace that when my life was heading to destruction, God reached out. He gave me an opportunity to turn my back, to repent, and I experienced the process of repentance. I experienced the experience of healing and forgiveness and moved on to experience life and life more abundantly. Our, our role as a church is to teach transgressors His ways. What are His ways? His ways are restoration. His ways are forgiveness. His ways are grace. His ways are mercy. His ways are bringing 
bring us back into his house, his ways are, his arms reaching out and say, he is the father sitting on the balcony waiting for the son to come home after days and days of waiting and nothing happening and nothing happening and nothing happening. One day the son walks down the road and the father jumps up off the chair and he runs down the road and he wraps his arms around the failing son and he kisses him and he hugs him and he brings him and he says, give him a new coat, give him a new uh, metal, give him, wash him up a little bit and kill the fatted calf. He was lost, is found, he was dead, is alive, he is home again. My friend, that's the grace of God. That's the love of God. That's the church of Jesus Christ. We are grace givers to the world around us. Why did God forgive you? Why did God restore you? Why did God bring life back to you? Because He wants you to teach transgressors, the people that have missed it, the ways of God. That's what God wants to happen. You can stay standing. Acts chapter 3 says this. Why don't you stand with us? But were God fourfold told by the mouth of the prophets that His Christ would suffer he thus fulfilled. This is the result here. Look at this. Repent, therefore, and turn back. Repent, change direction, turn back. Look at this. That your sins may be blotted out. It's what God wants to do for you today. If you're here today and you go, John, that's me. I, I am messed up. My life's a mess. If you're watching online, you're in your house. That's why you're in your house. That's why you're not here in the room. You're hiding out. You're hiding out. You don't want to be seen in public. You're worried you'll get judged. God loves you. We're not angry at you. God's not angry at you. Forgiveness can be yours. Repent. Repent, therefore, and turn back. Turn your back on your sin. In a moment, we're going to pray a prayer. Lead you in a prayer to say, God, I need a fresh start in my life and relationship with you. God's going to respond to you with His grace today. The next step after that is letting somebody know I prayed that prayer. I want to take more steps. I want to go through baptism. I, I want to walk this walk that keeps walking towards God's best rather than turning my back on it best. Repent, therefore, turn back that your sins, that's what's going to happen, may be blotted out. Look at this. This is the result. That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Repent and be converted. Why? So times of refreshing would flow from the presence of the Lord. Close your eyes right across this place. Jesus, we look to you right now. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. There's no one righteous, no, not one. But your grace and your mercy, the blood that you shed on the cross, can cleanse us from all unrighteousness and give us a brand new start. We acknowledge our need for a brand new start today. We want to repent and be changed. So times are refreshing. Life. Life instead of death. Joy instead of depression. Smiles instead of frowns. Happiness instead of anger. Acceptance instead of rejection. Hope instead of fear. Times of refreshing would flow from your presence. Lord, I pray as people pray this prayer today that that would be their experience here this morning. 
that rivers of refreshing would flow from the presence of heaven over their life right now. That's our prayer. With eyes closed right now and you say, John, that's me. I, 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 I need to pray that prayer. I'm not right with God. I want, I want to repent. I want to change direction on my, my life. It's bringing destruction on me and my family. And I see the consequences of it. I want to, I want to reverse it. I need some help. I need some help to get on this journey. It begins with a prayer. I'm going to count to three. I'm only counting three, so on three, you can just release your faith and say, that's me. You can just say, that's me. I'll see your hand. I'll acknowledge it. You can put it down. One, two, three. Lift your hand right now. Who is like that today? Hands up. One, God bless you. I can see your hand. God bless you. I can see your hand. Anybody else like that? You, you've raised it. God bless you. I can see your hand. Anybody else? Lift it real high. I'll see it. God bless you up there in the balcony. I can, see, I can see another hand at the back there. God bless you. You can put your hand. If you've raised it up, you can put it down there. I can see your hand. Anybody else like that? Say, that's me. That's me. Last time I'm asking, then we're going to pray this prayer. God bless you. I can see you in the balcony. God bless you. I can see you right back there. That's awesome. Fantastic. God bless you. I can see you. That's so cool. That is so cool to see you doing that. God sees your hand. God sees your heart. He's going to respond to you. I want to encourage you. Once we pray this prayer, it's the first step. When you walk out of the building, let somebody know I prayed that prayer. No one's going to judge you. We're just going to love on you. But let's pray this prayer together. Everybody, if you raised your hand, I wish you would have. Make this your prayer. But let's all pray today this prayer together. Say, dear Jesus. I've heard your word today. I'm responding to your grace. Thank you for loving me just the way I am. Thank you for loving me enough not to leave me the way I am. So today, I'm asking you for a brand new start in my life and relationship with you. I take a step in a different direction. I repent, turn my back on my old life and make a move towards a fresh start. Please forgive me. Let me experience your love, your mercy, and your grace right here, right now, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.